Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, Managing Director for the John S. Knight Journalism Fellowships at Stanford University, Alberto Mendoza. In 2014, I participated in a year-long program now called the Media Transformation Challenge at the Pointer Institute for Journalism. The fellowship provides a set of transformation-oriented tools, expert instruction, and coaching within a top-notch community of media executive peers, all pointed towards a fellow's specific outcome-oriented challenge. Put plainly, the fellowship changed my life. Taken together, MTC drives real, measurable outcomes for executives and their businesses and leaves fellows with practical tools applicable to all facets of their lives. What also makes MTC so unique and meaningful is the community of coaches and peers that tend towards lifelong trusted friends and allies, the kind one calls for advice, guidance, and connection on the reg, and the kind that one asks to guest on their podcast. This week, in the second in our series of MTC-sponsored episodes of Friends and Neighbors that we're calling MTC Journeys, Managing Director for the John S. Knight Journalism Fellowships at Stanford University, Alberto Mendoza, walks us through his remarkable career and reflects upon his recent tenure as a 2019 MTC Fellow while Executive Director of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. We'll hear how Alberto's upbringing in Mexico and Puerto Rico informed his early advocacy on behalf of diversity and inclusion in journalism, from the founding of a Spanish-language newspaper as a high school senior to the founding of Honor41.org, an online nonprofit that highlights Latinx LGBTQ role models to his hand in radically transforming the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. And we'll go deep into how Alberto, catalyzed by the MTC program and community, leveraged his remarkable bias to action and rich nonprofit experience to invent, found, launch, and rapidly grow Palabra, a multimedia platform which produces and syndicates informative reportage to support NAHJ membership amplify their voices, and reflect and advocate for their community. What follows is a long, winding, and scenic road of a conversation, one that measures and marks mileposts on Alberto's remarkable journey, a journey that surely has miles and miles of insight, innovation, and inspiration yet to come. I knew that that program was definitely a game changer. People that had participated not only felt a tangible product that they came away with, um, even from the start, but just the cohort experience and having all of the bright minds in the room just made a big difference for all of them after the program and, and so on. So I was like, when is it my turn? I have to do this. This is something I desperately wanted. So I knew about it probably for three years before I even got to apply. My idea I had even before MTC was really how to make the Association of Hispanic Journalists one that was passive, an organization that was proactive. And so from the beginning, the from to exercise was really something that was just key for me because I wanted to go from what it was to what it could be that was the draw from the beginning. And so when it was time for the challenge statement, even though I had a good sense of what it was for the specific project I was bringing on, which was to launch our own multimedia platform, 
it all still pulled us back to say, what is it that you want to do with the organization? And it was that, you know, from one that was passive to one that was proactive. We depended on our members to sign up. Our members depended on being hired. Journalists, I think in general, never are quite independent because even if you have a piece, someone has to edit it and someone has to, you know, there's so many stages to it. And so you spend a lot of time waiting for things to happen. And so by default, you know, the association was the same. And I just could not accept that with all the resources of people that we had and the talent, that we had to just be passive and wait for things to happen. This seems like a very personal experience of witnessing or experiencing passiveness in the world and seeking proaction and really manifesting proaction yourself. That's what drives me. There are gifts and blessings that I've been bestowed upon. And for me, it has to be about sharing. I don't want to be a gatekeeper. I want to be a gate opener. I see myself as a bridge, helping people get to where they need to go. Sometimes opening the door to get up and sometimes it's opening the door to cross the way. Because I look at my life that way, then everything is about action and, and being proactive and not just waiting, but knowing that if we wait, it's just not going to happen. Make it happen. The onboarding process, that first session at uh, MTC is kind of famous, at yes. least amongst the cohort. Share with our listeners what the first question in the room was and from whom that question came. One thing is to want to be around these incredible minds, to be in this room with the cohort that you're starting with of people you already know and respect from BBC to the AP to Maynard Institute, CNN. And then we met the fellows from the previous classes they were finishing up. And they, again, another impressive class from CNN and Word Radio and BBC you're in this room with 50 people that just blow your mind that you're inspired by or that you know that, boy, if they're doing this, then you're in the right space. We had this conversation. They were talking about their experience and I'm not going to lie. There was several of us on the other side, those of us who were new, who were like, man, what kind of Kool-Aid is this? (laughs) These people really drank the Kool-Aid and talking about language and words that were foreign to us. And one of the things that came up, frankly, was that that they were really still working on diversity. How did diversity impact journalism and why we needed more diverse leaders in this room specifically, this room of pioneers in the industry? The last class mentioned that they had taken the stop and they had to address how race and culture played out in journalism. And The first question when they opened it to us was, I looked at the room and I didn't see that many more people of color or people that look like me compared to the room across the way. And I said, well, if that was so important, why is this class look the same? (laughs) It just began this process of always approaching it with a lot of genuine curiosity, but also one that was about how do we really make that reform happen? It's not good enough to just talk about it. Uh, How do we make it happen? And I do think that by the time that it was said and done, the first class did have more people that were diverse than initially had been in the room at that moment. But it was an opportunity to have that frank discussion. Uh, For some, that was enough. For some, it was not enough. But that's the reality. And how do we make gains and how do we move closer 
It wasn't there to try to embarrass anybody. It was about like, okay, well, look, if you don't have enough diverse people in your background, then I can help you because I have more. And and so it became right. that that moment of looking at being proactive and not waiting until we're recruiting or being asked to be a part of something. I took the initiative to want to be a part of MTC, but it doesn't mean everybody can. And sometimes people don't think they can. And so it was about, okay, it's an issue. It's still an issue. It keeps getting better, but it's still an issue. And it's something that, that continues to improve. And how can I open the door and build bridges? Exactly. I had 10 names ready to go and say, okay, what about this person? What about this person? It isn't just about getting people of color in here. It's also making sure that if they have to pay, they're not going to be able to do it. Because when we're coming from nonprofit newsrooms or these organizations, a huge investment like that is not likely to happen overnight. So it needed to also come with money. And and that takes time. They had to be the right person that was with the right program at the right time for the project and the money. It says a lot about asking hard questions, which is just so critical. And I wanted to use it also as a bridge to then go back in time, which is to ask you, how did that question, why don't I see anyone who looks like me in this room? How did that question connect to La Vaz Azteca? You know, you're right. I don't think about am I asking a tough question. I'm just asking the obvious question. And I don't have a problem with getting an answer that I don't agree with, but I don't want to wonder why. And then I can work on the answer Mm -hmm. if I didn't like it and how I can add to it. This is reflective of just my childhood experience. I was born in Mexico, in Tijuana, which is across the U.S. border, and in San Diego. They were both raised very, very poor with lots of brothers and sisters. So community and sharing and giving back and giving to each other and giving to the neighborhood was just how they survived. That's really giving back was the only way to kind of keep growing from sharing your clothes, from sharing food and and, and so on. Before I was a year old, we moved to Puerto Rico where my dad was in sales for the vacuum cleaners Kirby. I got to see a whole other side of life in a different way that I didn't know was so different until I got to the United States. And when I got to the United States, all of a sudden there was a language barrier. I also vividly remember noticing that people that were darker or looked like me were not seen the same ways as people who were white, basically. And even though we settled by the San Diego-Tijuana border and crossed the border almost daily, because we spoke Spanish in Puerto Rico, all black, whatever color you were, you spoke Spanish. And so I didn't grow up thinking about anybody being different because they were a different color. I just saw them all the same. And it took later as a teen to see pictures that people look differently for me to register that they were different. That only happened here in the States. I didn't understand it, but I knew that was part of the the norm. And and one of the things that happened when we settled by the San Diego Tijuana border, we had a high school that was about 65% Mexican. And these are Mexican kids, half at least crossed the border daily. And then we had about 25% of kids that were Filipino. The Filipino kids ran all all the activities. They were president of student government. They ran the newspaper, the yearbook, all the activities. Very, very few Latino Mexican kids were in any of these activities. And I wondered why in my mind, I thought, well, how is the minority leading <laughs> the majority? Are, are we, do we really not care or do we, do we not know? So I went to the high school paper at the time and I asked if they would consider putting in a little 
section that would look like a calendar that would list the events, the tryouts, the meetings in Spanish. I went directly to the professor and I said, okay, by the time we were done with that conversation, he said, why don't you gather students and let's see what we can do? And I said, well, if I gather the students, I'm going to want more than a page. We're going to do this as a newspaper. He goes, you get those students <laughs> that can write <laughs> and are bilingual, English and Spanish, and we'll do it. Again, very naively, I just went ahead and recruited and made it happen. I named it. It's called La Voz Azteca, and it continues today. It's become a, a room with 50 Mac computers that has a pretty great program on journalism, but also marketing and PR, just something that students like that would have not had a chance to do while I was at NHJ. I actually got to meet a couple of students who went through my high school and became part uh. of the newspaper who they credit being journalists because of that. And so I was like, oh, wow, okay, that's kind of a, sure. <laughs> that's really cool, full circle. It was about what was right to do, to balance out the playing field, to not wait mm -hmm. to be given something, to ask for something, to demand something that balances opportunity, to demand something that we're entitled to. And that's also what led to my career in nonprofit, frankly. So by the time that I got to NHJ, almost 30 years from the time that I started that paper, I knew I wanted to do the same kind of concept, but now with a different point of view. And I didn't have the language or the tactical approach in this kind of environment, especially working with journalists, to know how to best push that forward. MTC was gonna give me a framework that I can use to communicate effectively, or at the very least, be surrounded by other journalists, use the language, use the framing, uh, learn about timing more. And those things, I think, ultimately are what led to the success of Palabra launching really faster than I expected, but also with measurements of things that I didn't even think about from the beginning. I'm actually working on a film about trauma, capital T and lowercase t, and that includes chronic stress and also adverse childhood experiences, right? And microaggressions like being chanted towards and that and bullied and so forth, the day-to-day -day stuff around assimilation, it's interesting to me that it catalyzed almost the opposite behavior as one might expect. In other words, you didn't cower or go within, you seem to kind of become more proactive and dynamic. How conscious of that were you as you experienced it as a younger man, if at all? The oddest way I can explain this is that I'm a true Gemini. <laughs> there is one person in me that is completely limelight, forward, center of attention, takes over a room and is comfortable with that microphone. And I have the other side that is very introverted and shy and awkward, socially awkward, and more comfortable being by myself in a room mm -hmm. and watching things happen, but not being around them. And that is the irony of trying to do a newspaper or something for students that were crossing the border and be a part of the experience in the U.S., especially since they were going to school there. It also then brought these other cultural things that, that came with it that ultimately resulted in me getting bullied and being called mm -hmm. a word um, that was the equivalent of calling someone a, a gay man, a faggot, 
So I'm <laughs> indirectly brought that on to myself <laughs> by being a voice uh, or trying to help this population have a voice. And so I don't know how those two guys worked out in my mind, but, you know, I did what I had to do. And then I retreated when I could. I can't really go to San Diego still that much, frankly. I have family memories that are great, but I, I, I left San Diego because... I wanted to reinvent myself and that seems yeah. silly, but I didn't want, I didn't want to be that kid that was bullied for being gay and, and have that just be thrown at me every time I saw someone at the store or something. Mm-hmm. And, and interestingly enough, even with connecting with people from high school, like they don't remember that as much as I do. Of course. Like, of course it affected me, <laughs> but you know, I've had conversations and they're like, Oh really? We thought you were always so happy. And you're smiling. And, and I'm like, you don't remember that. And I still struggle with that today. I am still very, very introverted and extremely extroverted. My commitment is to balancing out the playing field. How do we create the same kind of opportunities so that others have that opportunity and coupled with other activists and other leaders that are about injustice or about other things. I think I just, it's a compliment to how other people take space in the world. It also means that you're creating a world in which what you experienced doesn't have to happen. It also led to me launching my own online LGBTQ organization called Honor 41, in Mexico, November 18, 1901, there was a group of men that had been that were gathering for a dance for a ball. And this is a very short, simplified version of that story. But there were 42 men, half dressed as men, half dressed as women, and a ball. And of course, to even talk about this subject way back then <laughs> was really mm-hmm. something that you would never do. But at some point in the night, the cops come, beat them up, and arrest all 42 men. And then as they were incarcerated or put in jail, turns out that one of them was a son-in-law of the then Mexican president of Mexico, Porfirio Diaz. He was his son-in-law. And so they released him and the remaining 41 were jailed, beaten up, and then eventually disappeared. And so calling someone 41 was the equivalent of calling someone a maricón, a faggot, a game. And so that was what became my... My scarlet letter was the number 41. It was odd to have this experience where there was this very social guy who was still doing things. And then there was the the extreme pain that that shy one went through when all that happened was living that at the same time. And it took me 28 years after leaving high school to actually end up learning about that story of the 41. Mm. because I, I didn't know. I never knew. My dad knew, but my dad never told me. It was an issue, of course, in my, in my family at the beginning. And so when I found out that there was a history to this and that I now could see myself in the past, I did. I was like, OK, no, it's not going to end like this. So I launched Honor 41 to reclaim the number 41. So you can't use that against us. Second, to educate others about that moment in time. And third, to, again, celebrate what we're doing, but also be a little voice for that kid who's coming out who has nowhere to turn or doesn't know what it's going to be like to be an LGBTQ person nowadays. And and maybe they don't know who to ask or they don't they think they're the only one in the world that's going through this. If they can stumble upon these interviews at this point, there's 268 interviews of these individuals that are coming from all walks of life, but are Latino and talk about that experience, 
then they're hopefully going to have a greater chance to a normal life. So back to your point, yeah, how can that not happen to them or minimize that pain that, that I have gone through or others have gone through? And then to La Palabra, at some point you seem to see the infrastructure of content and editorial and the sort of back end of an organization as part of a much larger solution. Talk through how you possibly connected that first experience in high school, the launch of Honor 41 and Palabra. I mean, to me, there's a real clear through line. NHJ started in the mid 80s, had done really great in the 90s, and then it dipped. And then by the time the recession happened in 2008 through 11, at the end of 2011, they had um, almost closed their doors. They laid off everybody, they had a part-time executive director, mm. and they were down to about 730-some members. So came on full-time in October of 2015. And I already had a lot of ideas, but as I started talking about what my ideas were, I noticed that people were getting very nervous. Here's a non-journalist <laughs> already talking about new ideas that don't have anything to do with us. And I thought, oh, wait a minute. Okay, so they're, they're, they're still in the problem so deep that they're, they're not ready to think outside the box about how to change things. Well, that's the one I can always remember, the power matrix, <laughs> power influence matrix. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I realized that I had to do certain things that they would judge me on first and that if I mastered those, that it would be easier than to introduce other ideas that I think had a bigger impact. But right now I just needed to focus on the things that they needed. MTC would call those early wins. The early wins. I needed to gather a lot of early wins before I can introduce anything else. Still with the same framework of, okay, this is supposed to have this impact, but it's not. So how do we change it for something else? For example, we would always have a national convention that was considered Mm -hmm. a career expo and we'd have panel discussions and everybody came. And frankly, I thought it was an event that became really centered around the sponsors. It was all driven for them. And I thought, well, you know, we don't have that balance system. They're paying for it. So you kind of have to we can't hold them accountable for how many people they actually hire, but they get to walk away with checking off a box that said they interviewed 1,500 Latinos. And so I added um, and brought on some folks who I knew were very well respected, also were on the forefront of innovation in journalism. And our first real convention that I took the lead on with, you know, our own stamp, I changed it from calling it a convention and called it a conference. So it was our training conference. We introduced a training curriculum three days of data visualization that could help you cover Mm -hmm. any story, not just immigration. And so it became very hands-on on tools and things that could help you continue to evolve your career. And for any storytelling, I was handling the operations, but I just thought, you know, we're having this meeting with Marty Baron, or we're having this meeting with Mm -hmm. this small paper in New Mexico. And after the yelling or not, Everybody walks away and goes back to the little corners and we think we feel good because we've called them out and they think they're going to do something or not. But there was no real record of that. And once we Mm. all would leave, I thought, well, nobody would know that we had this meeting unless we recorded somewhere. I wanted to leave something that we can point to as a resource. So I'm going to hold you accountable for what you say about my people and my community, but I'm going to give you a resource too, so that you can understand why it's incorrect. 
So we launched uh, what we called our cultural competency guide or handbook that was mm-hmm. launched in 2019. And that was about context, not just words, but the cultural context and why there is a debate between Hispanics not wanting to use the word Latino from the East Coast and why Hispanics, uh, Latinos don't want the word Hispanic in California, for example. So just understanding that and not assuming that everybody is the same, those are all things that continue to add, again, not just reacting to something, but being proactive about taking ownership of your narrative and how you want to really lead (laughs) and be proactive, not just wait. It sounds like it really is a a steady evolution from, you know, being a, I don't know, 17, 16 year old and seeing a gap and being like, wait a second, yeah, we got to step into this gap. And then at some point, and this is where we get to the MTC challenge, right? You have this vision for this new entity, which I'll ask you to describe. And then you start to see it to solve against a whole set of opportunities, including, well, gosh, where do we make sure there's a steady stream of content uh, that speaks for and to our audience, ourselves, right? It covers off on that accountability. It actually puts dollars in young journalists and new journalists' bank accounts, et cetera, et cetera. So there really is a steady evolution. It's really easy to see La Vasa Azteca as in a lot of ways, I'm not trying to oversimplify, but you look at one and you go, wow, that's incredible. He just took this kernel of an idea and made it large and impactful, you know, an idea in a high school and made it impactful across the planet. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, it was, you know, it's a bookend. <laughs> well, for now, it could be the middle book. Yes, that that is true. <laughs> the same thing with Honor 41 is filling the gap mm-hmm. um, to voices that weren't represented, not waiting for someone to tell our stories, but how do we tell our own stories? Who gets to tell our mm-hmm. stories? It was the bottom line. And it always seemed that the answer was white people. <laughs> mm-hmm. It just was that we didn't. We weren't in charge of our stories, both as a person of color, as a Latino, as a gay man, as all these things. So yeah, that's the recurring theme. I get to do this now years later and having gathered many more skills to be able to do that in a different way. And also, I still just love to start it. I don't like to run it. In my high school, like, it was perfect that, you know, I got to start it and I got, but it got better because other people were coming through and changing it and making it more relevant or modernizing it. I actually cried when I went back and saw all the Mac computers uh, in the room because we had to share com- computers with the kids, the Filipino kids who were running the paper, but they wouldn't let us do it during school, their school hours. So we had to come from uh, five to six in the morning and from seven to 8 p.m. And it was that little box on the table. It was little apples with the tiny screen. It makes me happy, but... I don't think, oh gosh, that was my mark in the world. I was like, great, you know, like that's the way it should be. And and you kind of move on. And so Palabra is this concept similar to the high school newspaper, but different in that we have so many talented journalists that are part of NHJ. The industry has become one that again, because the industry leaders get to determine your worth, they get to determine that you're overpaid now. And therefore, your cost isn't net, netting the value that you bring. Let's make you a, a freelancer <laughs> and or let's have you take a buyout and you're out the door. Making people very dispensable. 
Mm-hmm. And and I understand. I said, well, these people have worked their whole life to be a journalist, and now they don't even get to be a journalist. And then the young ones were coming on. They were like, I want to tell stories about my community that not being told. And then they would get to a newsroom, and that wasn't the stories that they were getting to tell. They wanted to talk about police brutality, and their assignment editor was saying, well, these police officers are getting harassed by the community. And like. No, no, no. That, that's not the story. The story is, so there was a big letdown of what they got to do in these newsrooms. And young people seem to have a better sense of value than some of us, but they're not going to go to Fresno for, or Bakersfield for $19,000 anymore. So it was this real reckoning of moment for the industry. Like, how do we reclaim our voice? How do we extend the lifespan of a journalist at least for a little bit longer how do we also pay them their worth? Because the concept of Palabra was that it would be a multimedia platform where we can tell our stories done by our freelance members and our freelance journalists. And that in that space, that culture and language would actually be front and center as opposed to whitewashed and, and reduced. Mm-hmm. And they were it wasn't going to be breaking news. There's been some investigative, but it's been mostly issues that impact us and we started small with two stories the first time, what we call soft launch in, in November of 2019. January of 2020, we had another edition. We weren't ready to know what. I, I also needed to find the money to make sure that I could do it. Because one thing we were not going to do was exploit our own people to just give us free content so we could grow. Well, no, we were going to grow as much as we could pay, folks. And when I'm learn later, like pay them up front because <laughs> half the time they're chasing mm. people and they don't get paid for, but they get half the front and then half and, and, and so on. Just we didn't, weren't going to do what they already were experiencing. And then COVID hit and then it all just changed and, and accelerated our timeline. And because of MTC and looking at my challenge in a different way and addressing an emerging need that now was an emergency, we were able to kind of scale up very fast. And and it grew very fast because of of COVID and addressing stories and, and a population that just wasn't getting that coverage. You've got this idea in your head. You've got a lot of great experience that gives you uh, the resources in, in your own mind and the resources in terms of relationships and know-how. And you've been accepted to MTC. I wonder if you could talk about what you walked in with and then how you came to determine and shape that challenge initially. And then I think that would get us to midway through your term, COVID hits. I had the idea of Palabra, almost had a start to it, but it was the challenge statement process that gave me language and gave me a structure to what I was actually doing, not just for with this project, but for the organization itself. I had not ever framed it in the from to statement. Charlie was my coach who I loved the entire experience. It was Charlie who, you know, I was stuck in that I kept talking about this from to proactive, from reactive to proactive, but it was the entire organization. Palabra was a tool to do that. But my challenge to him, it was really bigger. And it was what I was doing in my leadership role there. But it took MTC and even the process of developing the challenge statement 
to really see that and give it a framework because I never had talked about it that way. I never thought of it that way. I was just my impulse and my area and my instinct was to, to take action. So that first week, so we had that meeting and then the, the, by the, I think it was the third day, honestly, and Sierra Hinton and I connected instantly to black people, queer black people. We actually had lunch and we thought, man, man I know we're not stupid, but we don't know what this is. <laughs> you know, this is the way white people learn because we don't know any of this and I feel dumb. And so we were struggling with everything just being thrown at us at that, at that moment. And we didn't drink the Kool-Aid just yet. There were others that felt the same. Uh, I only gravitated to the people of color, frankly, that were sharing that out loud with each other. Yeah. But we did believe in the process because they made it clear that no one failed. We had to suspend our own preconceived notions. And also we had to be vulnerable to the process of learning as opposed mm -hmm. to just mm -hmm. be upfront and put your stake on who I am and blah, blah, blah. This is what I've done. Early on, it was, there was fear about the process. Mm -hmm. I personally didn't have fear that it would work. I just, I was fearful of being vulnerable Honestly, with journalists, I feel like it's a real competitive group that is kind of survival of the fittest. And I had never had a cohort experience like this. And so I was assuming what I had seen, and that was not the case at all. It, it was an environment that really incredibly supported you from the coaching experiences, but also the cohort and your fellows. I had never been in a, in a room with superstars that were all cheering for you too and wanted to learn from you, but also help you succeed. I think by the end of that first week, really, it was like, okay, this is going to be cool. <laughs> I thought Charlie was going to be a real <laughs> hard ass about the, you know, like the process, but I also found him to be very empathetic and also very relatable and, and, and walk me through, you know, I would say all of the coaches had that for their fellows. And I, I couldn't have imagined this experience would be so life altering, frankly. You just took a whole journey <laughs> with me. We just took a whole journey together, right? Cause that is in a lot of ways, the journey. And I just want to say one sentence about me, which is the decision I made was that I wasn't going to walk in that door acting like I knew it all and resting on whatever my CV looked like. I was going to be the most Mr. Rogers and me version of me I could be because I felt like I couldn't fake it anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think it had anything to do with where I came from or what school I went to or any of that. It was it was a whole new framework. Mm -hmm. And it's a framework that applies to really any industry as I think that, right. you know, they were able to share examples of. But I think when you're a person of color, and in my case specifically, I wasn't a journalist leading a journalism sure. organization. And while I was Latino, <laughs> I am Latino. There was some apprehension from folks about what I would do to their organization. I initially also thought that no matter what, MTC would be some nice initials for my profile in the industry. And with so many people I respected that had that experience, that then I would be a part of them and, and indirectly be a part of this fraternity of sorts of other leaders that had gone through this framework changing, rethinking and reimagining how you approach leadership, having wanting that and, and being a part of that. 
but also showing up feeling vulnerable only raised my wallet to not feel completely inadequate. Mm-hmm. My question to the class though had nothing to do with that. That was a genuine question, but it was just all the, all the, you know, I think what's 125 slides that they finished <laughs> in the first, in the first three days. It was just a, an unusual setting. And then the work doesn't yeah. end, you know, work continues. So you're still during that and you're getting emails while you're chatting. And it was an experience that now I get completely and why it has to happen that way. Yeah. And I did drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> the challenge for me at the beginning was that I was trying to create a from-to statement about the product of Palabra that was from waiting for our stories to be told to us creating our own narrative, from waiting to be hired to us hiring our own members. But it was bigger than that. It was taking a step further back. And so so my first visit was about the product, but that wasn't the challenge. I think the challenge was giving me, again, that framework to the bigger picture of what all these things added up to. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was definitely from an organization that was passive to one that was an organization that was proactive. The from two is is really something I pretty much still always use and I'm thinking and, and use in framing conversations about why reform needs to happen and the benefits that it has and its impact. And it's what I'm doing now also within my job. Give me an example of a challenge that you faced in those early months and how you used assumption versus knowledge to, to move through it. Well, let me also say something that was very unique to our class. We're supposed to be in person and we didn't meet in March. By the time that we got together, we were in crisis mode. Hmm. We were in world crisis mode. We were no longer dealing with a, whatever problem we brought to the challenge experience. Now we were gosh, stumped. We didn't know what was going to open, who was getting sick, who was dying, who, you know, we had it in our families. We had it. It was everywhere. Like, it's almost like the the six months from COVID, like maybe from March to September. I don't think that I was there when it came to the our activities in also constantly thinking and putting everything through that framework. So those things, as important as they were, and and what was great is Charlie during our coaching would kind of (laughs) remind me that this is what you're doing. And it just became a year that then it was Black Lives Matter and racial reckoning. And then it was the insurrection. And then it was like, there was just like one thing after another. I'm surprised that we didn't lose more people because to think of something else that you added to your plate in the middle of all that chaos. But I think that's also what brought everybody closer. And even, even if we only saw each other in person once, like that was our moment to, to get together. So we all had to, including the coaches, had to suspend whatever expectation was a part of the normal framework that they used and had to adjust. Well, that only makes what you manage to achieve with Palabra that much more notable and that much more essential to your community. Yeah. And and I will say, you know, luckily I also was not responsible for the content and that creation. We had a, man, a managing editor, Ricardo Sandoval Palos. We had B.A. Snyder, who was doing the website. 
it absolutely was a, sure. was a team sure. effort. But I don't, again, we had, none of us had ever been in this life. But I, I will tell you, I think that the essential motivators for personalities helped me understand a little bit more of how to sell it and when, thinking about what I needed to master as it related to the power and opinion matrix that related to who was really in the room and who did I think I needed to include. And how you might influence them based on their temperaments. Yeah. Are you a catalyst or an improviser? I'm a catalyst. <laughs> I had a hunch. Yeah. I only threw an improviser because you said you love starting things. You're not a stabilizer any more than I am, which is like, you know what? Someone else can keep it going and, and make it happen. I love the ideation and bringing the people together. Yeah, I actually believe that you have to do that if it's really going to survive and that it's going to be better because you brought other other folks to the mix. So in some ways, I feel the earlier parts of the activities that involve the challenge statement and the from to the behavioral scorecard, I think, was was also something that was helpful. And then I would say towards the end, the North Star and the S-curve were kind of how I, I kept a good sense of where I was going with things and how I was accomplishing things. Right. And for those who don't know, how would you like, what's your shorthand on the S curve? Kind of realistically of where you start and identifying that place and knowing that there's going to be a cycle to everything and that where you start, if you look at an S, you're going to be at one part of the S and you'll eventually close that, but you'll essentially start over again. And that, some of the activities that you're doing will take you through that S-curve naturally, but there's also a place where you land as the overall project. And that way, you know, you've achieved the stage that you wanted to. My understanding is you guys came to ways of measuring outcomes that were unique. Example, cumulative dollar amounts. Um, I wonder if you could speak to how you thought about signposts for success with Palabra and the work. There were two key money markers. One I knew and the other one became clear. The first one was that I needed to raise money for it and that the only way this was going to continue beyond this initial rush of information was to have money in the bank. And I I think I had a low goal of $500,000 was my financial fundraising goal. And then by midway, they made me change it. <laughs> and they said, you're already getting there. You're, that's not fair. So they made me change it to a million dollars. Yeah, I didn't make it to a million. It was just, I think it was 9.15 or 9.25, something like that. But you well exceeded. You I did, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and that felt really good, of course. Another goal was that we would increase the number of people that we were hiring. And again, mm-hmm. it was harder when you did have money, easier to do when you had more money, because again, we weren't going to not pay people for the work that they were doing. So it was easier to increase, you know, the percentage of how many freelancers we were hiring to do the work and the stories. So we had a, a correlation to the number of stories that we were putting out and the number of journalists that we were hiring. And that, again, would suffice the need to keep people in the industry and tell our stories but one that I didn't expect was that by being featured in Palabra and, and really having a, an open canvas of space in a non-crowded field where you can talk about something that's important and have it anchored in culture and language. I think to total, we had in the first year, 
think it ended up being 12 journalists that got hired for full-time work and three that got on to projects and two more that ended up getting additional freelance work over a million dollars. I think it's $1.5 million if you add up their salaries together for what they contributed. And that was a tangible I never thought about or, or kept in my mind. And through MTC, that was one of those other number wise that you can count on. It continues to grow. And, and that is something that was a direct give back to the industry. And not everybody wants to go back to work full time in, in a major outlet, but those who did had the opportunity and and they continue to credit Palabra for being that space, even though they were already an established, most of them established journalists before, we knew that that would give them a, a unique place to, to show their talent. In addition, it also brought back folks who had been somewhat retired or were now coming, working as communications directors or doing other things. Now they could actually be an editor again for a short time. They could mentor a younger journalist because that was another component, bringing on veteran journalists to help mentor and guide some of these younger freelancers who needed much more support and guidance. So we were able to bring back folks back to NHJ that were no longer involved. And that was a beautiful part that I think our managing editor, Ricardo Sandoval Palos, who had the network brought to, to that mix. There's, and the editorial integrity, but also the connection to a generation of Latino journalists that had either been pushed out or had to walk away to support their families. What I hear is that there's a large amount of dimensionality to the value proposition of a kernel of an idea that you brought to MTC, right? Because there's taking control of the narrative, there's providing a depth and insight on uncovered topics and communities. There's the economic value, there's the mentorship value, there's the training, right? It's, again, like a culmination of so much of your work. And I get that there's a large team of folks, but th this is the kind of thing that the MTC process helps you to kind of parse out and create steps around, right? For sure. Once I knew we were moving forward, <laughs> I, I went to my fellow EDs at AAJA, NLGJ, NABJ, Naja, the, the five of us. And I said, we're launching this. This will really only have a significant impact if we're all doing this, if we're all leveraging our individual talents and not just depend on them when, telling us when our stories matter. So I think NABJ has announced, or they're going to very soon, they're launching their own independent media outlet. I know AAJA is, is looking at that as well. And Naja has done versions of that based on funding. But again, I think that the reality is people want to go into mainstream media and we want to create those opportunities and those don't die. This is about another population of journalists who don't have access, will not have access. And we also get to claim the stories that are important mm -hmm. to us. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it's even more powerful if we're all doing it and I'm excited for that day so that I can look back and go, ah, this is so cool. If you could tell me a little bit about your coaching relationship, how those coaching calls went, I understand that they came to sort of evolve to be two-way. Charlie and I just, because of COVID and how they were trying to adapt the program and do things through Zoom and frankly, do things they've never done. Our conversations were 
where I feel like there were conversations. I think we were coaching each other, but not just about MTC. It became about things that we were having to adapt to and change as we were leading organizations, as we were managing expectations during a time of crisis and utter fear. We both were able to do that for one another when we each needed it. And it always started with an MTC-specific topic, but it shifted based on on what was happening, especially I remember around Black Lives Matter and seeing some of those, just the impact that it had on people and all of us who, I knock on wood, I've never been in that position, but it was just something no longer you could ignore or put aside. And that talking through that and, and having learned from what, even the conversations that had been had the year before on race, that now here it's how it's happening and here's how it's relating to people. I think he felt comfortable and I felt comfortable to be vulnerable and again, talk with each other and give each other advice. So it was a, a mutual coaching relationship that I still use because I still <laughs> schedule time with him and chat with him and connect with him. It feels really great when you pop in any Zoom room right now and you see alumni or people that you worked with. I don't know how I would have survived without that. I just don't, don't know. Not only did I have my family, but now I have this organization that I'm responsible for as well. Yeah. And that created some other drama, to be honest with sure. you. But the mutual relationship of coaching with Charlie reminded me how much I missed that part mm. of working with people one-on-one. And the impact that I wanted to have at NHJ was really kind of a macro level, but I miss that micro, that one-on-one, that ability to work on and see someone develop and rise to even things that they didn't think they could do or think through. And so when the job came up at at JSK, all of a sudden I was like, that couldn't be a better fit for me. One, because here are people that are game changers and that are really looking to change problems in journalism, kind of in the same way that the challenges wants people to look at. But what I was seeing was that some of these journalists with bright minds were leaving the fellowship and they were just starting to think about nonprofits. And I had met somebody prior who had said, okay, I've done this fellowship. It's great. I got some money, but I don't know how to do it after that. And I thought, wow, if they had the nonprofit framework earlier and they could start with that in the fellowship, they're going to be better off by the time that they're done. And their odds of making it are going to be greater because it's a whole other language, it's a whole other So that's how I sold my participation, is having really a good understanding of media, journalism, nonprofit, and then looking at this trend of of really nonprofit newsrooms popping up, how to really create that, that opportunity to succeed. And also modernizing this amazing 50 year old fellowship that pays journalists to, to think and strategize and, and get that one-on-one coaching. So I also get to do that one-on-one coaching with the fellows. I, I get, five or six a year. This is going to be my first year doing it in person Uh, because we were doing it virtually in the last year. This is also the first year I've gotten a job virtually (laughs) without meeting everybody, which is also really strange just through Zoom. But it's all tied together. That's why I think that the MTC experience for me not only had life-changing benefits to what drives me as a person, but also it kind of reconnected me with that need to just keep it tighter on who I get to work with and and help them throughout that growth opportunity point that Charlie, I think, did with me. 
I channeled Charlie in that process as well. How'd you help Charlie and MTC evolve? That's a question they would have to answer. <laughs> but I know that clearly the numbers are bigger, are higher. I also like how they're marketing. They still are getting better, but I like who they're talking with and who is featured and what their experience is like. And I actually got to speak to the class early on this last class. And it was great to see a room that had more people that looked like me. I had also referred a couple other people the year before. And I think ultimately, if you're going to be criticizing, you better also provide some support and guidance and solutions. And I didn't feel the responsibility to hold them accountable for that. And my question, I don't think, was the catalyst for that. I think there was a process, but I think my question and Black Lives Matter and having to restructure everything accelerated the need to do something faster. And so I think it was a combination of all of those things, but all of us who go through this program just have had such a transformative experience and we want others to, to benefit from that as well. And I think if the leaders at the top would go through this, it, it might change, but at the very least, the ones that are coming up with this experience are game changers. And I'm, I'm a part of be a part of that alumni network. How did MTC improve your odds of success at NAHJ, with Palabra, and now with Knight? You know, I'm pretty driven and pretty focused on making things happen. So I don't think that changed for me in belief to achieve something. But it certainly gave me screens to use, processes to, to go through and, and organize my thoughts and tactics in a way that are much more intentional rather than by accident. Things that have been beneficial to me is how much I value the importance of emotional intelligence and how I leverage what I call social capital which is, again, that ability to move things in the right time. But coupling it with these other tools just really had me zero in on what I needed to do and when. I think it's probably also had a bigger impact even on my coaching. And perhaps that's where that, maybe maybe that's actually the, the biggest way it had an impact because now I could go in and see where someone was and jump into that mode of coaching and incorporate ways in which they could be much more successful or build their own confidence by using some of these tools. So has it changed my life? 150% for sure. And would I do it again? Yes, I would do it again. Because yeah. I would also love to have a normal fellowship yeah, experience. That yeah. was like, um, not just once in person. What might you tell the young man or someone like him that launched La Voz Alteca, knowing what you know today. Your heart is in the right place and why you're doing it will make a difference. And don't take no for an answer. I guess I think of it more in a visual, like you get there and there's a wall in front of you. Instead of just saying, I can't, there's a wall in front of me. It's like, okay, can we dig a hole? Can we go around it? I think that my life has taught me that there are so many ways to go and cross to the other side. And MTC, even though I might have known how to dig in and go under, MTC now gave me a ladder to go over it. 
And yeah, I'm forever grateful. Friends and Neighbors is an Essential Industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborshow.com. And for more on MTC, please go to the Media Transformation Challenge program at pointer.org. And please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Lifelong friends.